Bible Interact is a group of Bible scholars and biblical archaeologists who promote the Hebraic nature of Scripture and view the two Testaments as one unified message. They explain how they use a first-century approach to searching the Scriptures, and they share their methods and discoveries for discussion and dialogue. They invite your comments and participation on BibleInteract.tv, where you can also find more teachings, self-study quizzes, webinars, and interviews. Hello, my name is Christy Anderson. I'm one of the teachers here at Bible Interact, and today we're going to be going through the first session of a six-part series on the book of Galatians, and this is uh, called The Message of Galatians from an Ancient Hebraic Perspective, and we're not going to have time to probably get to every element, so I'm going to quickly jump in to this teaching. So I don't. if you want to find out more about uh, my personal ministry, go to foritiswritten.com. Again, that's foritiswritten.com. You can also, uh, at bibleinteract.tv, find the uh, video teachings of this series as well. So I encourage you to do that. Now, as we jump into session one, this session, as we begin to look at the book of Galatians, we're going to first pan out and understand the context in which Paul wrote. Because he's not writing in a vacuum. He had an historic context going on. They had, uh, the, the Jews at the time had a view of salvation. And he was saying, wait a minute, there's, uh, we've misunderstood this. And so he's trying to correct their false doctrine of salvation that was going on at that time. So as we begin to look at the book of, of Galatians, before we jump into the actual text, we want to understand the historic context in which Paul is speaking. So what we're going to do is first consider that Christianity as we know it in our modern world simply did not exist in Paul's day. Um, so what was that historic context then? We're needing, we need to really look at that. And we need to understand, as I said, that Jewish doctrine of salvation. So we've got to look at the, the history and the grammar. We've got to consider the teachings of other letters. We've got to look at the writings of the other apostles, because all of these things have to agree. God's word cannot contradict itself. For example, if James says in James 2.24 that man is justified by means of works and not by faith alone, and then Paul says in Galatians 2.16, we are justified by faith because by works of law, no flesh will be justified. How are we going to reconcile these things? Well, we have to look at the context and understand the semantic range of the term justified. There's a big difference between saying something is justified as in made right with God through the faith of Messiah and being shown or demonstrated to be right or righteous. Those are two different things. So, but both would use the term justified. So we got to consider that semantic range of words and how things are being applied in different contexts. So we also need to consider the entire counsel of God. If Paul is teaching something that is inconsistent with Genesis or uh, one of the prophets or even Revelation, then we know that we have misunderstood Paul because the word of God will not contradict itself. So the first thing we have to do as we're approaching the text is really look at the text with those Hebraic glasses. We need to put those Hebraic glasses on and that is an Eastern way of looking at life and things and situations and how it's described and how it's all of these things are going to be different than coming from an American Western Christian perspective. So we're going to have to put those Hebraic glasses on for a little bit and really approach the text in a different way. Now, 
even though we're going to have some hindrances like contextual gaps, um, you know, you only have one side of the conversation. The audience was aware of other things going on that we are going to have to do some homework to figure out what that history and background is that they already know. And we're going to have to understand that Paul uses a lot of pronouns and vague references. Like in Galatians 2.18, he says, this one. Well, if you don't understand the context and you're not digging into the flow of what he's saying, you're not going to know what is he talking about this one? What is that referring to? So we can overcome these hindrances, though. And we're going to do that. And I'll give you an example is today you people text you on your phone probably all the time. And yet they don't give you all the letters, even to all the words, but yet you're able to decipher the meaning. And that's how we're going to dig into Galatians and figure out the meaning. We're going to be able to capture the meaning, but we're going to have to do a little more homework than normal. And as, as we know, Peter said that Paul was hard to understand and his words could be easily distorted by the untaught and the unstable. Uh, so as we go forward here, we're going to look first at three primary issues. And they're going to center on specific aspects of circumcision. And uh, the second thing we're going to look at is that Paul uh, is going to deal with normative Judaism's uh, false doctrine of salvation. So the general uh, overarching idea of how someone was saved, how did Judaism think someone was saved at that time? And we need to understand that. And that's really what we're going to focus on predominantly in this first session. So we get a good handle on what Paul was dealing with. Uh, so we're also, and the third thing we're going to look at is Paul is going to clarify the true Hebraic doctrine of salvation according to the scripture or the Tanakh, that uh, the Old Testament is, it's, it's Christians usually call it. Now, this historic backdrop that we want to look at, uh, there's God-fearing Gentiles that attended the synagogue services regularly. We know this. Uh, Modern theologian F.F. F. Bruce, who's quite popular um, commentator, says that the God-fearers, by listening to the reading and exposition of the scriptures, learned to worship the living and true God and, become, and became familiar in some sense with the hope of Israel. But they were told that they could not participate in that hope, in this hope or share the privileges of the people of God unless they were prepared to become proselytes to Judaism, an issue to which, no doubt, their Jewish friends confidently looked forward. So that first element there we're looking at is, is the assumption was you, if you were coming to worship the God of Israel, you were going to become a proselyte. That was the, the natural progression uh, towards salvation. And salvation in the Jewish mind was not this once, one-time prayer thing. It was a process, something you would grasp for, you would never achieve, but yet that was part of the process of salvation was seeking it, um, which is still partly true in the scriptures, uh, that idea. Um, but some of the details, you know, the enemy just skews something a little bit one way or the other, and those ideas can, can get off track real fast. Now, the second thing we need to look at in the historic backdrop here is that Paul was not bringing a new or different gospel. Again, F.F. F. Bruce notes, he says, Paul, for his part, did not jettison the Old Testament, as we call it. For him, its writings constituted the Holy Scriptures, Romans 1-2, he's quoting there, 
and only the only scriptures he knew. He called them the Law and the Prophets and described them as the oracles of God. They found their fulfillment and had their meaning made plain in Christ. The gospel, which in them, and them he's referring to the Law and the Prophets, was preached beforehand to Abraham, was the gospel which Paul was commissioned to proclaim. It was no recent invention. So here we see even this modern Christian theologian verifying that Paul, uh, Paul was not creating some new salvation. This was the same salvation that was preached to Abraham. It's the same salvation that was preached from Genesis to Revelation. So as we go on, the third thing we want to consider in this historic backdrop is Judaism's idea of salvation and that it was by grace. However, they did believe it was by grace. However, there was a catch. Tim Hegg, um, biblical scholar Tim Hegg, he explains it in this way. Every Israelite was secured a place in the world to come. Righteousness is attributed to all who are members of the covenant. Righteousness is a matter of God's willingness to reckon the pious deeds of the fathers to their offspring and to forgive and show mercy when Israel sins. Thus, the place in the world to come which belongs to all Israel, is a matter of God's grace, not something earned or merited. Indeed, it is the basic presupposition of the sages that life in the world to come is a gift given to Israel in the same way the Torah or the land was given. If we go to the Babylonian Talmud, we see that Rabbi uh, Simon ben Yahoi, I can't Sorry, if I can't pronounce his name, if it's not in Hebrew, I can't actually read it. When they transliterate it, I have a hard time, so I apologize. Uh, but anyway, he says in the Talmud, Three good gifts did the Holy One, blessed be he, give to Israel, and all of them he gave only through suffering, the Torah, the land of Israel, and the world to come. So we see here, that those are the three things that they believe that Israel received by grace, by the grace of God. We go on in the Babylonian Talmud. Again, there's a quote that states, All Israelites have a share in the world to come. As it is written, Your people also shall be all righteous. They shall inherit the land forever, the branch of my planting, the work of my hands, that I may be glorified. So, in this Jewish doctrine of salvation, we see that it states, or their view was that it was by God's grace, but it was through birth or status. It was exclusive to the literal seed of Abraham. There was an exception to all nations through conversion or a change of status. So salvation then was a gift given by grace, just like the land and the Torah were given by grace. But certain acts could, of course, disqualify one uh, from receiving the world to come. Now, Gentiles, they said, have no portion in the world to come. And we see this again in the Babylonian Talmud where it says, uh, none of the Gentiles has a portion in the world to come. And you jump down to section F there where he quotes and says, one of the rabbis say, as it is said, the wicked shall return to Sheol or hell, um, all the Gentiles who forget God. There's also uh, several opinions, and they all had the same. And we jump down to section J there. Uh, there's one dissenting opinion. 
And this rabbi says, now that it is in fact written, all the Gentiles who forget God, it indicates that there also are righteous people among the nations of the world who have a portion in the world to come. So here, at least one of the rabbis uh, said that, or made an exception, obviously Ruth and you know, others in the scripture, there's precedent there that they, they have a portion in the world to come. But even here, they're thinking, oh, there might be a few righteous Gentiles, and we've seen evidence of that, but it's nothing like what Paul was dealing with in his day. All of a sudden, this is going to be a massive influx of a lot of people from the nations, and that's what they were not ready for. They didn't think that many from the nations would be righteous, and God would declare righteous. But that is what was going on at that time that Paul wrote. Now, this third element in this Jewish doctrine of salvation said, anyone who violates the covenant of Abraham is not saved. So a Jew who is not physically circumcised then would be considered not saved. And we see this in the Jerusalem Talmud where it says, do we not learn one who profanes sacrifices and despises the festivals and violates the covenant of Abraham, our father. And in that case, they uh, put in quote, uh, parentheses circumcision. So when it's saying violates the covenant of Abraham, our father, it specifically notes circumcision as their referent and is brazen in the Torah, belittling it, even though he possesses the Torah and good deeds, he has no portion in the world to come. So if he wasn't circumcised, they did not consider him what we would call today in Christianity saved. Now, a Gentile also, they thought, or potential convert has no eternal life, they say, if he or she is not circumcised and immersed or baptized. And we see this evidence again in the Babylonian Talmud. And it says a person is not deemed a proselyte until he is circumcised and immersed. And if he is not immersed, he remains a Gentile. So he had to have both circumcision and immersion. Obviously, the immersion is key because that would apply to the women. Uh, Obviously, they're not going to be circumcised in that case. Now, Tim Hegg explains this whole idea when he says, through circumcision, immersion in a mikvah or baptism, and making a sacrifice, the proselyte transforms his status from unrighteous to righteous. That is how they believed you were saved in that time that Paul was writing. So the bottom line here is that the ceremony conferred covenant membership and covenant membership conferred the right of salvation by God's grace to his people. And that's the problem um, that, that Paul was dealing with in this whole mind and thinking. Um, it's like if you consider today uh, the idea of Sabbath, if you tried to turn the big ship of greater Christianity around and say, you know, uh, the seventh day isn't the first day. It's never been so, uh, and the Sabbath Sabbath hasn't changed. So if you tried to get everyone in their customs and their way of thinking from Sunday as as a makeshift Sabbath uh, to change them to keep a literal Sabbath on Saturday, that's that's a big thing you're trying to change and, and get people's minds to go back to the original text and what did it really say and Paul is doing the exact same thing so to just to give you an idea of what he was up against it would be like getting the entire Christian community to begin to keep Sabbath on Saturday uh, as as it's defined in scripture and and so that's a big turnaround and a big thing when people have their views of certain things and the way they do things and observe 
All right, so moving on, we're going to now look at, um, there's three terms to depict the Gentile, that they, that they viewed a Gentile. You were either an adulterer, you were the wicked, or you were an enemy of Israel. Those were basically anything that was not Jewish was either that. You were either considered an adulterer, you were considered the wicked, or you were an enemy of Israel. That's the only ways they describe Gentiles. So the term enemies of God is used as a synonym in this case for all three in the rabbinic anthology. Now, according to also rabbinic literature, there were only two kinds of Gentiles then, adulterers and those who became proselytes by disassociating themselves from their Gentile status and becoming Jewish. Again, that's the statement by Tim Hag. So we see also in a book called Judaism by James F. Moore, he explains this a little further uh, when he says, It may therefore be said at the outset that Jewish law knows no semi-proselytes, nor any other kind of proselytes than such as have, by circumcision and baptism, not only become members of the Jewish church, but have naturalized in the Jewish nation. So that ancient mindset was that Gentiles are not saved. Jews are saved provided they remain faithful, but Gentiles can be saved if, if they come in covenant, and the way ye came in covenant was through circumcision and baptism, uh, or the, what's called the mikvah in Hebrew. Now, thus this Gentile's change in status from unsaved Gentile to saved proselyte occurs because of ceremony or a supposed work or execution of law. It's a status change in this context, and not because of some other act of God, such as Messiah's death or resurrection. So um, that's where this difference in how people were saved, what it was the doctrine of salvation of the Jews versus uh, at that time, versus how Paul later became and understood uh, salvation to be coming about, and he was arguing it from all the way back in Genesis through the whole Tanakh, through the whole Old Testament. So he's arguing it and proving it from the scriptures. He's not making it up as if it's a new thing he just invented and figured out. But he is arguing that the scriptures all along have shown this truth that he's going to argue. And we'll get into what that real good news was and some of the details actually when we dive greater into the text later on down the road. But for now, the bottom line that we really need to understand is that salvation was a matter for, for the Jewish view of salvation at the time. This thing that Paul was up against, what he was having to deal with, was that it was a matter of accessing God's grace. Gentiles had no access to God's grace as far as they were concerned at all, unless, of course, they wanted to become a proselyte. So Jews had access by birth, simply by being born a Jew, you had access to the covenant and birthright. Now, if you were not circumcised, if your parents were not faithful, if they had not circumcised you, then you could be cut off from your people. So you had to have circumcision. So that's why uh, that particular thing with circumcision became like a catchword. You end up having circumcision um, as a catchword for the entire proselyte ritual. So um, when, he, when Paul is speaking of circumcision, you really have to look at each individual context in which that term, circumcision, is being brought up. Because in some cases, it's speaking about the literal act of circumcising someone. 
And in others, the semantic range of that term is being used as a catchphrase for the proselyte ritual and going through the, the proselyte ritual and becoming and chain, trying to change your status from Gentile to Jew through the flesh, through circumcision of the flesh. And so we understand also here the bottom line for Paul is he's, he's coming into this understanding of the good news, having that, you know, encountered the Messiah and, and he's gone off and secluded himself and studied. And now he's been preaching this whole time. And now he's finally come back and thought, well, you know, any of us would maybe question ourselves a little, have I got this right? Because clearly if Paul had not truly and deeply understood and had the teaching and understanding to really articulate from the scriptures on a very deep level, um, this truth that God, it's, it's clearly how God used him because of his upbringing at the feet of Gamliel. And uh, one of the, the, the most uh, famous uh, um, rabbis at that time and teachers. So if he had not had that background, he would not be able to really teach um, that true good news that we're going to dive into as we get into the text later on. And so God used that knowledge so that he could even change the hearts, as we'll see in the next teaching uh, of Peter, who a lot of the apostles, they had these same misconceptions, and God had to give Peter an, an actual vision to correct some of these false ideas about salvation, and particularly regarding Gentiles, and how he was saving and causing the nations to be cleansed. And so Gentiles then we see can acquire access to God's grace via a change in status from a Gentile to a Jewish proselyte. Um, but that was what they thought anyway. So as we review again that bottom line of what was that uh, doctrine of salvation or that Jewish doctrine of salvation, we see that they believed, and what Paul was up against is that they believed that God's grace was through birth status, that Gentiles had no portion in the world to come. If a Jew violated the covenant of Abraham or was not circumcised, he would not be considered saved. And a Gentile or potential convert must be circumcised and immersed or baptized in order to be saved. So we see this very assumption come up as the key issue driving the need for that Acts Council and why we're going to, um, why Paul is having to uh, really nail home in the book of Galatians the folly of this false doctrine of salvation. And he's going to establish and make an important contrast that we're going to really dive into as we get through this series and see each element as he's breaking it apart, um, how it's not by works of law, and he's going to contrast that with the faith and faithfulness of Messiah. And we're going to see that some of the modern English texts actually mess up and um, uh, change the, the scriptures just, just slightly. They change a little two-letter word of to an in, and it actually changes the entire meaning that Paul is trying to communicate. So as we go on, this, we're going to wrap up for now because we're going to run out of time. 
But next time we will dive a little bit further and deeper and we'll look at kind of Peter's vision and how that played into what was going on to just get a little more background before we dive actually into the actual text of Galatians. And so in session two, um, I hope you'll come back and we'll look at the laws of separation or association that were at work at the time uh, that Paul was writing and how that impacted his ability to um, spread that good news to the nations. Um, as I said, if you would like further information, um, we have this entire teaching series on video as well at BibleInteract.tv. Again, that's BibleInteract.tv. And you can also get information. I have a book that can dive deep into this entire teaching of Galatians. So um, there's actually a two-book series. One goes into an in-depth study, and the other is more for practical application. So I encourage you to look at that at 4 Thank you, and shalom.